I just want to tell you that if you are often isolated and by yourself, you are separated and removed from the plight of your, God's people, the family of God who need you. You may think, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to come and go as I please, and I'm my own person. And certainly in our day and age in America, we value above all things, and we idolize above all things our own autonomy. But God has called us together as a family to bear one another's burdens. And when you are divorced from the life of the body because you're off kind of doing your own thing, uh, you're not fulfilling your calling. And so... um, that's incredibly important because when you experience trials, there are people there for you. And God wants that. It's not just a matter of learning the right things about God and praying privately at home. It's about living our lives together as the people of God, as the family of God, mourning with those who mourn, weeping with those who weep, and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And so uh, I'm not wagging my finger, but I kind of am wagging my finger at whoever it may apply to, if in our minds we think uh, that we are islands to ourselves and we can do whatever we want without any consequences, when in reality God has designed and purposed us to be a part of the body of God. Okay, there's my rant. I've said it. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, We need each other. I need you. My father passed away two weeks ago Saturday, and there was just a flood of phone calls and text messages and emails And not only that, but I could feel the prayers, and that's huge. And so, um, yeah, I just just want to to say that that's how God works. God um, calls us to a body. So without further ado, um, we are in our second, it's sort of experimental, our Q&A Sunday, which there are five Sundays, excuse me, four fifth Sundays a year. And this is the second where we've decided to answer questions that you all have submitted, and um, uh, we're we're hoping that these questions answer some uh, um, things for you that strengthen you in your faith and edify you and also equip you to share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Some of these uh, may feel just like Bible trivia, and some of them may be real uh, impediments to your understanding of God. So, Um, There are seven or eight questions, and the first one, we're just going to jump right into it, is uh, when was Jesus born? We'll start with some of the the easier ones and and kind of work ourselves into some heavy-duty ones, okay? When was Jesus born? Someone asked this question. Uh, So the modern Gregorian calendar uh, places Jesus' birth uh, 2,018 years ago, right? So the modern calendar that is pretty much a worldwide calendar Place of Jesus' birth at about 2018 years ago. But most scholars agree that uh, the actual year of Jesus' birth was likely six to four years before that. So six to four BC, which sounds weird uh, that Jesus Christ was born four to six years before Jesus Christ, right? Uh, but uh, it means that he was born likely 2022 or 2024 years ago. And the basic evidence for this comes from Matthew and Luke, uh, which says that he was born uh, during the days of King Herod. And Matthew, Matthew's gospel, mentions that Joseph remained in Egypt until King Herod died. And uh, the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus uh, records that uh, an eclipse of the moon took place 
the year of Herod's death, placing his death around 4 BC. So if you can think of the traditional idea of Jesus' birth being year zero, um, and minus four years, that's 4 BC when Herod died. Um, And uh, the reason um, for this, again, is Josephus' statement about, uh, we don't pay attention today too much to eclipses of the moon or or it's, they're not that big deal to us, that, that big of a deal to us. But um, in the ancient world, the uh, lunar movements had everything to do with the calendar, uh, the Jewish liturgical cycle, and uh, agriculture. So if something coincided with a lunar eclipse, it was recorded in history, and it was uh, sort of a way to triangulate events that were going on. Um, And the reason we think Jesus was born two years before this, 6 BC, is because of the statement by Luke um, that the census, there was a census took place during the time when a person named Quirinius, governor of Syria, um, was in power. He became, Quirinius became governor of Syria in 6 BC, Uh, So it couldn't have been before that. So that's why most Bible scholars say Jesus was born between 4 and 6 BC, somewhere in that that zone right there. Now we'll come later to what that makes Jesus' actual age when he died. We'll revisit that in a second. Uh, As far as December 25th, and I'm talking about the day Jesus was born, because the question doesn't say what year or or what month. So I'm I'm, I'm covering both bases here. As far as December 25th, uh, the actual day of December 25th probably has some strategic liturgical importance. In other words, as the Christian community was growing, it was competing with the Roman and the Greco-Roman calendar uh, and liturgical calendar. They had their own cycles of observations, you know, right, throughout the year. And as the Christian church grew, they recognized that there was definitely some synthesis going that needed to happen. Now, uh, synthesizing things in a pagan culture is not always bad. It can be bad if we're synthesizing worship and trying to place the worship of, of an idol over the worship of God. But sometimes um, uh, um, synthesizing calendars or lunar cycles, it was perfectly fine. In fact, the word we use today for God comes from the old German or Nordic word uh, for the gods, which is the word Gott. And so our idea or word that we use for God itself was taken from a pagan, you know, kind of a pagan vocabulary. Uh, But we've given it new meaning. And so to sum up December 25th, essentially what Christians did is Jesus likely was born Uh, In the winter time, so the month is probably accurate, very close around the time of December 25th. Whether he was born on the actual day of December 25th is unlikely, possible but unlikely, but uh, it served some liturgical purpose and, uh, and it was very successful in getting people to think about and celebrate um, the birth of Jesus Christ. So when was Jesus born? In the winter of either somewhere between 4 and 6 B.C., The second question, and this is a really good question, this is actually a more theological question, is, is Jesus omniscient 
while living on earth. That's the way the question was asked. Was Jesus omniscient while he was living on earth? And essentially, if you don't know what omniscient means, it means knows everything, right? So when we talk about the character of God, we talk about attributes, God's divine attributes. And some of the attributes of God are omniscience. God knows everything. Another one would be omnipotent. God is all-powerful. Another divine attribute is omnipresence. God is everywhere at the same time. Now, um, the questioner wants to know, when Jesus was on earth, did he know everything? And that assumes that, of course, now Jesus does know everything. But was Jesus limited, in some sense, when he was in his humanity on earth? Uh, it's helpful to recognize that Jesus was limited not only in omniscience, but also in omnipotence and omnipresence. In fact, so, so he was limited in more than one way. The biblical warrant we have for this is Philippians chapter 2, which says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not exploit his equality with God, but emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, which implies that there were some divine attributes that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, had that he relinquished temporarily while he was on earth in his ministry. Does that make sense? So, for the purpose of Jesus' ministry, to fully be human, he could not know everything. He could not have power over all things, nor could he be omnipresent in his fleshly body and humanity. Jesus limited himself temporarily in certain ways. Now, having said that, uh, I want to answer this question about his omniscience carefully. I don't want to be too technical and mechanical and say, you know, here's why yes, here's why no. I want to nuance this position just a little bit. So to the question of Jesus' omniscience, we want to say this. Jesus, while on earth, knew more than any other human being knew, no doubt, right? We see him in social settings where he is practically reading the minds of other people. He knows what they're thinking, and he speaks answering their questions before they've even asked them, okay? So Jesus knows things that people don't know. So he likely knew more than anyone on the planet at that time as a human being. He was equipped by the Holy Spirit to do his ministry. He prayed daily for illumination. There's a little side note about prayer for us in terms of the things we know, the things we can discern through the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is that key. So Jesus needed to pray. He wasn't born with this automatic knowledge. He grew in learning and understanding. He studied the scriptures. He prayed, asked for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, he knew things in powerful, powerful ways. He wasn't just perceptive, uh, but it was, it, was, it was very powerful. Now, um, to the disciples, Jesus appeared to know all things. And in some ways, this may be some biblical hyperbole. Here's an example. John 16, 20. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to, have, to ask anyone uh, questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Another statement in John 21. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? 
And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And so from the disciples' perspective, and from the casual observer, I don't know that there were any casual observers in the times of Jesus, but for the person on the street, seeing Jesus speak and do miracles and demonstrate power, it certainly appeared that he knew all things. It appeared that he knew all things. Uh, But from the perspective of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they see things similarly. John's gospel sees things a little differently. Its its purpose is to defend a uh, a very high Christology, Jesus' divinity. Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize more the humanity of Jesus. And when Jesus is asked, for example, about the timing of his return, he says in Matthew 24, but about the day... And the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, talking about himself, but only the Father. So when asked about the timing of the end, in Matthew 24, when, shall the end, when will the end come, Lord? The disciples asked. Jesus said, look, I don't even know that. So he admitted he did not know the answer to that question. Uh, he didn't know the timing of the end. Uh, in Mark 5, And 30, when Jesus is touched by the woman with the issue of blood, some of you remember the story, Jesus feels power go out of him, and he turns and says, who touched me? Now, some of us think, well, this is for a rhetorical device. I say no. Jesus is surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of people, and genuinely wanted to know who touched him. At that moment, I think it's fair to say, Jesus didn't know who touched him and was asking who touched him. And there are many other incidents like that in Scripture where Jesus asks questions. We always assume, because we're good Bible-believing Christians, praise the Lord for that, that Jesus always asks questions with some strategic purpose. He's really, it's really always just rhetorical. Sometimes it is, sometimes it is not. Some, Jesus, as a human being, had questions. Like when he said, who do people say that I am? He wanted to know, what are people saying on the street about me? And then Jesus says, well, what do you think about me? I mean, these are genuine questions. And so Jesus knew what he needed to know. Here's how you can say If someone says, did Jesus know all things? Here's what you can say. He knew what he needed to know, which was more than anyone else, but not everything. So there's the question. The next question, number three, is when did Jesus rise? Now, I'm not sure if this person is asking what year or what day of the week Jesus rose. I'll try to cover both. Uh, But to get at this, we look at the crucifixion, which scholars uh, date between A.D. 21 to A.D. 36. Now, that's a broad, that's a large gap there. A lot of different scholars with different opinions. Uh, So generally, the timing of Jesus' resurrection falls within this, this dating of A.D. 21 to A.D. 36. Now, I consulted the works of Dr. Harold Honor, uh, who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, who's an expert in the chronology of the life of Jesus. And so I'm going to read a statement he made. I, I could have put it in my own words, but I figured I'll just read what he wrote, because he wrote it better than I can say it. He says this, In order to attempt to come to a concrete date, one must examine all the evidence at hand. First, it was seen that the officials in Christ's trials were Caiaphas and Pilate, who were in office simultaneously from A.D. 26 to 36. This removes the A.D. 21 date. 
And next, in examining the day of the crucifixion, it was concluded that it occurred on Friday, um, the Hebrew month of Nisan, the 14th day. And so with the help of astronomy, the only possible years on which that particular day and month of the Hebrew calendar uh, occurred were A.D. 27, A.D. 30, A.D. 33, and A.D. 36. One can eliminate 27 and 36 when one looks at the ministry of Christ, leaving only A.D. 30 and 33 as feasible dates. However, upon further examining the evidence of astronomy and the life of Christ, the most viable date for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was A.D. 33. This date is confirmed when one looks into history, for it not only fills several passages um, of the Gospels with meaning, but it also prevents the charge that the Gospels are inaccurate or in some parts of the Passion narrative. Here then is the case, this is his final statement, here then is the case for the A.D. 33 date for the crucifixion and ascension of our Lord. And so this means that Jesus uh, would have likely been possibly in his late 30s, possibly 36 to 38 years old. So if you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was 33 when he died. No, Jesus was likely in his late 30s when he died and rose from the dead, possibly between 36 and 38 years old. And so um, the scripture, as to the day that Jesus rose, I don't know that, and that someone who asked that question, the person who asked that question was trying to get at that. Um, but people have had trouble making sense of three days in the grave. If Jesus died on a Friday and then rose on a Sunday morning, how is that three days? Uh, some people have made way too much of this idea of three days needing to equal 72 hours. That is not the way... Jewish chronology works in the Bible always. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It is enough to say that Jesus died on one day, was in the grave on the second day, and rose on the third day. That's enough. Three days, all right? This, this whole idea of absolutely needing 72 hours, that is just, that's not the way the Bible works. Um, and so just a side statement about that. As we want to defend Scripture, um, we want to... Here's a good rule. We want to be literal where the Bible is literal. And we want to be figurative where the Bible is figurative. So we don't want to make the mistake of the hyper-fundamentalists who want to literalize every single word in the Bible. In an attempt to defend the authority of Scripture, they actually mangle and do violence to the text. And then the liberal version is to kind of uh, allegorize everything as if nothing is literal. And what we want to do is we want to be faithful to Scripture. Some things are literal, some things are figurative, some things do not require literalness, like the three days. It is enough to say that over the course of three days, Jesus laid in the grave. Uh, the next question is Judas in heaven. This is a good question. Uh, has anyone ever thought about this question before? Okay, so half of one person. Point oh, oh okay, th about three or four people. Uh, the answer, uh, to be brief, is no, Judas is not in heaven. Next question. No kidding, I'll explain a little bit. Uh, Judas is actually in hell, according to Scripture. John 6, 70, Jesus says this about Judas, and so this comes right from the words of Jesus. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you 
is a devil. And he, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now that statement, along with the fact that the entire gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have very, have almost, well, they have nothing positive to say about Judas. Uh, mostly negative. He was a money grubber. He complained about the woman with the, with the box of ointment. He said this could have been sold and given to the poor. He was the treasurer of the group. Uh, I, don't, I, I haven't unpacked it, but there's got to be some link there between his, his wickedness and his you know, love for money, which the Bible says is the root of all evil, not money, but the love for money. So uh, also when the scriptures describe his... Um, his death by suicide, it is very graphic and is not very redeeming. Um, and I would, I, I would think that there are probably very few, very few scholars out there, I've never come across a single one who thinks that Judas somehow found redemption and forgiveness. No. Judas was a betrayer. In fact, the name Iscariot probably comes from an Aramaic word, skari, which means to hand over to betray, um, and so his very name and title probably mean Judas, the one who handed over Jesus, or Judas, the betrayer. So the answer to that is no. The next question is, is God fair? That depends on who you ask. This is a really big question that philosophers and theologians have wrestled with for a long time. Um, if fairness is the idea that everyone gets exactly what they deserve, then by this definition, the answer is no, God is not fair. And I say that with a positive trajectory. If everyone gets what they deserve, if that's fairness, then God is absolutely not fair and hallelujah for that. Because we don't get what we deserve as sinners who have violated the law of God. All right, how's that for a little curveball in your question? Um, but most people are not thinking about that when they ask this question. They're thinking really about the justice of God. So when people say, is, is God fair? What they're really trying to get at is, is God just? And that expands the conversation and creates some controversy. And it's complicated when we talk about the justice of God or the fairness of God because our modern conception of Justice is inordinately tied up with the idea of equality, right? So we, we tend to think about fairness or justice in the sense of everything is equal for everyone. And that is just not the biblical definition of how God's own sense of justice is defined. You know, it's, it's almost kind of like a Marxist idea of fairness, right? If you give you know, candy to one kid in the class, you've got to bring a box of chocolate so everybody can have candy, right? It's good for the classroom. It's not good for us to think about God that way because God is much more complex than that. Now, the Bible is unequivocal about this point that God is just. It says he's the rock. His works are perfect. His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he, the Bible says. Deuteronomy 32 and 4 God is fair in, in the sense that he's unbiased, honest, and just. Um, and P 
Peter, when he sees the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, says, I realize now that God is impartial, no respecter of persons, and he pours out his mercy on people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So in that sense, certainly God is fair. He offers salvation not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile, to the Greek and the Scythian and the Swede and the German and all your little mixes in here and the Puerto Rican. And, you know, he, God is pouring out salvation to all the peoples of the earth. And so certainly to the disciples, he seemed fair um, and impartial. Uh, now at the end of the book of Job, and I've got to wrap this question up, we want to say God is just, um, at the end of the book of Job, the book of Job is this wrestling with the justice of God. Possibly the oldest book in the Bible. If not, it's one of, the, one of the oldest books in the Bible. And it is a question that wrestles with the justice of God and evil in the world. Right? It's this idea that God is not fair because Job has said, I've been good and righteous. I've been a good person. And look what you've done to me, God. You know, and you know the story of, of poor Job. And for you know, dozens of chapters... There's this poetic wrestling back and forth with the character of God and the worthiness of man in the face of what seems like undeserved suffering and evil in the world. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Job, the end of the book of Job, Job, God does not defend himself. This is interesting. God does not say to Job, let me explain, let me explain, let me explain. I promise I'm fair and just. You know what God says? God starts talking about the cosmos and says, you don't know enough about the way the universe works, Job, to make a judgment call on whether I'm fair. That's what God says. He doesn't say, yes, I'm fair, here's five reasons why. Yes, I'm just, I promise, here's seven ways. He says, you in your finitude, Job, do not understand the way the cosmos function enough to make any kind of judgment call about me. And the book of Job ends right there. And on some level, those of us who live by faith trust, even though we don't always like the way things work out in our lives or in the world, and part of holding to faith is believing in spite of what sometimes the world demonstrates to be the lack of God's existence, there is this trust, implicit trust we have as a result of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts that says, I don't understand how a good God could allow this, but I still believe God is good. And I still believe God is just. Now this question is way bigger than you know, the four and a half minutes I'm taking, and I'm trying to end it on time. Um, but I just want to make a couple more statements about this because this is a really big one, um, this question here. God is eminently fair. He doesn't treat people wrongly. Um, the question of God's fairness often is, is talked about when we talk about the elect, those who have been predestined, those who are saved, those who has, God has chosen before the foundation of the world. And we often tr are trying to figure out the rationale behind God's eternal decree. In other words, in eternity past, if God is saying, I'm going to choose this group of people to be saved, and I'm not going to choose this group of people, we want to know, well, what was it, God? What was it? What was it? And those are just questions I don't think we can get at. Um, but um, in election, it appears that God is not treating all people equally. However, God doesn't have to choose anyone. 
This may be a tired argument for those of you who have been in the Reformed world for a long time, but it's worth mentioning that although it may appear that God is somehow being unfair by saving some and not others, we should be reminded that God does not have to save anyone. There's no rule. There's no cosmic rule saying if you give one kid a piece of gum, you have to give them all in the classroom. There's no rule saying that. In fact, God could have, after Adam and Eve were set up in the garden and ruined things by being disobedient, God could have said, well, good luck, you know, I tried. Watch out for asteroids and good luck in the judgment. I mean, right? God could have, you're on your own. I gave you a chance. I set you up in perfect harmony and fellowship and you messed it up. Sorry. I mean, God could have done that. Now, as I say that, we think that doesn't sound like God and it's not God, but he could have done that. But in his mercy and grace, he still chose to redeem not a few. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for the many. And so God is infinitely merciful um, in that he still chooses rebellious sinners who are headed for damnation through no other fault of their own rebellion against God. Now this leads into the next question, question six, um, because it carries over into the doctrine of predestination and election. Can you explain double predestination? I hope I'm not boring you to tears with some of this theological jargon. I, I hope you find this relevant, and I hope I'm able to explain this in a way that, that seems practical. But the idea of predestination um, and double predestination, I'll explain what that means. One, things, one thing that Presbyterians are known for is the doctrine of predestination. I told a friend of mine, I invited a friend of mine to church, and he told his Baptist grandfather, and he said, oh, Presbyterians, they believe in predestination. And so that is true. We're known for that. We're known for the doctrine of predestination uh, because it goes hand in hand with the doctrine of election. Uh, The elect are those who have been chosen and predestined before the world began. And I believe this doctrine, I believe in this doctrine, not because I'm a Presbyterian, but because I believe it is entirely biblical, Ephesians 1, 4. I'm just going to read this passage. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And there are many more verses that talk about God's predestination of people and his election of people. Uh, Now, the reason that God has to predestine people is because knowing how our hearts are in bondage to sin of our own doing, we could not choose God of our own free will. Martin Luther wrote a book about this, his most famous book. It's called The Bondage of the Will, which is making an argument that without God's intervening grace, that nobody can really come to God, that that's how powerful our sins are over us the sins that not only we commit, but the sins we inherited from our first father, Adam, which completely taints our nature. Um, The problem this creates is, if God predestines and elects certain people to be saved despite their sinful nature, doesn't it logically mean, by default, 
he is predestining the rest to eternal damnation. And that does not sit well with us because our mind thinks, so you mean to tell me there's a whole group of people who were, before time and eternity began, they were already set up for failure and God predestined them to go to hell? All right, that, that, that doesn't sit well with us in this day. I think a, cu- a couple centuries ago, people weren't bothered by that. But I think in our modern sensibilities of equality and fairness, back to the previous question, that somehow doesn't seem right to us, that somebody right out of the gate is, is doomed. Um, we need to remember a moment, something we said a moment ago, that God is not under obligation, but that Adam and Eve, by their own free will, and all human beings after Adam and Eve, choose to sin of their own free will. So in one sense, their will is bound to their nature, but in the other sense, no one forces human beings to sin, certainly not God, and the Bible says that God doesn't tempt anyone or cause anyone to sin. God is not the one making people sin, nor is God keeping people from him. That invitation to believe in him and to come to him is open to everyone, which means that God technically doesn't send anyone to hell. And I want to reemphasize this point, that God is not taking whole masses of humanity who otherwise would love to serve him and saying, sorry, you know, you're going in the pit. It doesn't work that way. The Bible, judge, one, one of the images of judgment is God simply allowing people to be given over to the things that they long for and lust after. And so... This may sound trite, but I'm just going to say it. God doesn't send anyone to hell. We, by pursuing our own sinful lusts and appetites, without God's intervening, just run headlong off the cliff, if I can put it that way. Uh, The fact that God knew it would happen doesn't make him culpable, uh, nor does God's choosing to save some make him unfair. Uh, Typically, in double predestination, again, the idea that God is predestining some for eternal life and predestining others for eternal damnation, uh, there there is not symmetry, if I can put it that way. In other words, God is not equally predestining both groups. With one group, God is intervening supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit, So every one of you here, you may have been born in a Christian home. Praise the Lord for that. That was part of God's means of grace. But God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has been working in your heart for many years, intervening in your life by grace, and bringing you to a place of greater and greater faith and trust, whereby your faith in Christ is cleansing you and forgiving you, and you're growing and being sanctified. And God is active in that process. God is actively working in your life. That it is not passive, it is active. God is working with you, reaching out to you. The Holy Spirit is working on you. The Bible says in Ephesians, he that has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. God is working, working, working in you. The other group of people who we would say have also been predestined, have not been predestined in the same way. God simply, God simply is passively 
allowing this other group to do what they do. He is not binding them from doing good works. They go down to pray and a prayer of faith, and God says, no. That's not what's going on. And so if we see somebody who appears to have faith, we should rejoice over that and not try to figure out who's predestined and who's elect. As a, in a matter, I'm going I'm to sum up this question this way. This whole notion of predestination and election is somewhat of a theological abstraction. It's a very abstract concept, and in some ways it is in all ways, it is not our job to try to figure out who's predestined and elect. That's not our job. We ought to share the gospel to love other people and to treat other people as if everyone has the potential of being saved. Because that's God's business. Who actually responds to the call based on some eternal decree of election in eternity past? That's not our, that's not our problem. That's not my problem. That's not your problem. Our job is to treat everyone as if they're elect because, for all we know, anyone we talk to has, the, has that potential, and only God knows if they don't. So we're going to share the gospel, we're going to pray for people, we're going to love people, we're not going to try to sit and figure out who's elect or not. That is certainly not what these passages hope to do to us. That is not where our hearts should be. And so on one level, this doctrine of predestination, of double predestination, is confidence that God is, is in control of all things, that he is the author and captain of anyone's salvation who actually becomes saved, that he is also the judge who judges the wicked, who essentially he just allows to be wicked. He doesn't do anything to them to make them wicked, but they are in their own power rebelling and God does not intervene, that God knows all things from eternity past. He is not causing wicked people to be wicked. He is allowing them to be wicked and he knew it before the foundation of the world. Um, one final verse on that, and I'm, I'm going to wrap it up with our next question, so I'm going to skip a question, but I want to read Romans 9.14. But the Apostle Paul, anticipating this whole idea of election, predestination, fairness, justice, this is what he says in Romans 9.14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God, injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion in whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. In other words, we don't earn God's grace. God does not choose us because he saw something in eternity past in us that was worthy. It's not based on human effort, but the will of God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. In other words, he allows a person to become harder and harder in their own sin. God says, I'm the potter. Who is the clay to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Paul anticipates that. That doesn't give us a whole lot of warm and fuzzies. There's a lot more that can be said, and if you want to talk about it over coffee, I'm available. It's good stuff, uh, but it is complex theology. Um, I'm going to skip over the next question. says, what is the next question? If God is sovereign over all, how can man be responsible for his sin? This would take me too long. I can't cover it today. I'll cover it next time. Next question. 
why are there two different types of baptism in the New Testament? And we're going to close on this question. Um, should we baptize in the name of Jesus Christ or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Has, has anyone thought about this before? Has anyone said, wait a minute. Okay, we got one. Uh, if Jesus said to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian formula, why is it that the, in the entire book of Acts, the eight different accounts of baptism say that people were baptized in Jesus' name? Very, very good question. And this question divides entire denominations. I grew up in a denomination that believed that if you, someone did not say verbally over you when you were baptized, I baptize you in Jesus' name, you were not going to heaven. You know, for a huge chunk of my life. This divides people. This is not just some abstract theological question. It divides people. Matthew 28, 19, we know that Jesus gives the Great Commission, right? To go out into all the world and to preach the gospel and to disciple the nations, teaching them to observe everything that Jesus taught the apostles. And Jesus says this, when you go out and disciple people, baptize them. And baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is Jesus' formula. But in Acts, the book of Acts, we have places where it seems that people were being baptized a different way on the surface. So what's going on here? Well, I believe that when the book of Acts says that people were baptized in Jesus' name, that's a way of characterizing the baptism. I'll explain. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came along, there were many different types of baptisms. Centuries before Jesus came along, when Gentile converts became Jewish proselytes, they would experience a baptism because by that time, the entire family was far beyond a place where they could all be circumcised, which was a sign of the covenant. So they were baptized. And baptismal rites are ancient, and they go all the way back to the Law of Moses. They represent purification. And so if a family, let's say in the 6th century B.C., wanted to embrace the God of Israel, they would be baptized, which was this ritual cleansing of their heathen impurity. Another type of baptism was John's baptism, the baptism of repentance, which was its own unique baptism before Jesus came along. And so people who were John's disciples were baptized into John's doctrine and repentance. And so by saying that people were baptized in Jesus' name in the book of Acts, it's a way of saying that these were people whose baptism identified them with Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. They were being baptized in the authority of Jesus, distinguishing them and their baptism from other kinds of baptisms. Um, now, what's important for us to recognize is that the book of Acts, uh, what the book of Acts records is not a verbal formula to be pronounced necessarily over each baptismal candidate. In other ways, and in other words, it is describing what happened, but does not say that the apostle or the disciple said to the person being baptized this verbal formula. I baptize you in Jesus' name. 
Nowhere in the book of Acts does it say that. The book of Acts is this uh, narrative by Luke who is describing these different baptismal accounts. And sometimes it says they were baptized in Jesus' name. They were baptized into the name of the Lord. They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or they were baptized into Christ. And so there is not this uniformity that the people on the other side would like to maybe pretend there is. There's this variation. It's descriptive. It is simply describing what's going on. Um, and this is what I think is the real key factor here. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul speaks to the Corinthians about divisions among Christians in the church in Corinth. So if you can imagine, there's me and Dean and you know, Mitch and Josiah, and if this church said, well, I'm Jordan's disciple. No, I'm Dean's disciple. No, I'm you know, Mitch's disciple or you know, some of our elders. I'm Justice's disciple or Mike's disciple. There were these divisions, and Paul brings clarity and rebuke to the Corinthians to say, you know, what's going on here? Did Paul or Apollos die for your sins? He says, no. Listen to this. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each, of you, each, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus, love that name, Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. In other words, in my authority. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. That's Paul's words. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And what Paul is, is talking about is he's saying not that he actually was baptizing people in the name of Paul. I mean, how could anybody say, I was baptized in the name of Paul? And Paul, Paul could have said, look, I said specifically in Jesus' name. What are you talking about? But he doesn't say that. What Paul recognizes is anyone who he's baptized was baptized under his authority. Just like when a Roman soldier showed up in a Jewish village, he said he would say, in the name of Caesar, right? It's under the authority of Caesar that he's issuing a, a call for people to pay taxes or whatever it was. And so if someone is, was baptized by Paul, they were baptized ostensibly by Paul's authority, and Paul is saying, no, no, no. He is not saying that someone was baptized in his name because he said, I baptize you in the name of Paul. Now, having said all of this and ending on a somewhat anticlimactic note to our talk for the last 30 minutes, I simply want to encourage you with the formula we have received from the very words of Jesus Christ, our Lord himself, about how to baptize there is one verbal formula that we are to pronounce when we baptize. And that is the Trinitarian formula, and it comes from Jesus himself in Matthew 
28, 19, when he says that when you disciple the nations and when you teach them about the words that I've taught you, and when you baptize them, here's what you're to say. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is the Trinity, the triune God we worship, the triune God of Scripture. And so that's the way we're supposed to baptize. Um, next time, the next time we do this, we will cover that question about man's responsibility, the sovereignty of God, and who's responsible for sin. I hope this has been helpful for you. It's not the most exciting stuff in the world, but it should be informative and edifying, and I hope it was interesting for you. And um, if you want any of my notes, send me a, a, an email. I can, I can expound on any of these points further. Um, and uh, with that, let's pray and close. Father, thank you for uh, these questions. Thank you for the ways that you have created our hearts to long for answers. And I pray, Lord, that in this humble attempt to address some very important questions in the last half hour, that you illuminate our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that we would come to trust in your word, and we would come to trust in the faith that was handed down to us through generations, a tradition given to us to you, from you to the apostles, to the disciples, all the way down to us in the 21st century. I pray, Lord, that we would be edified in our faith, that we would grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ to the salvation of our souls. In Christ's name we pray, amen.